You may have heard of oral immunotherapy, or OIT, and you also may have heard of sublingual immunotherapy, or SLIT. These are both two treatments for food allergy, specifically IgE-mediated food allergy. And I'm so excited to have back on the show today Dr. Hugh Wyndham to discuss OIT and SLIT. You may remember that we had Dr. Wyndham on the show earlier, and the AV wasn't great. This AV is better. Anyway, I'm super excited to have him back because he has an impressive academic pedigree, including Duke and Johns Hopkins, but he also has quite the impressive resume regarding clinical work that he does in the sunny state of Florida and helps allergists and patients really across the country. He's medical director of Sarasota Clinical Research. He was the first to offer OIT in Florida, and he leads the Food Allergy Center of Florida. Plus, stay tuned for a special recap of this episode from me at the end. Welcome to Food Allergy and Your Kiddo with Dr. Alice Hoyt, the podcast about demystifying food allergies, diminishing allergy anxiety, and taking back control. Let's navigate this challenge together with evidence-based information, scientific research, and tried and proven practices. And now, here's your host, board-certified allergist and immunologist specializing in food allergy, Dr. Alice Hoyt. Hello, and welcome to the Food Allergy and Your Kiddo podcast. I am your host, Dr. Alice Hoyt. Over the moon, delighted today to be joined again by my friend in Florida and an amazing allergist with expertise in food allergy, Dr. Hugh Wyndham. Hello, Hugh. Hello there, Alice. How are you? I am fantastic. Thank you very much. And I'm so happy that you are back on the podcast because the last episode we did had such good content. So if you're listening to this, you definitely want to go listen to that one, but be prepared because the audio visual, the audio just really wasn't what it needed to be. (laughs) So today will be better. Um, And I'm so excited. We're going to cover a lot of the same information from there, but also new information, more information, more about OIT, um, and some also about SLIT. So super exciting. Um, thank you again for being here. You do a great job with your podcast, Alice. So I look forward to sharing things with you and your audience, and um, we'll all learn together. Well, thank you. And I know that they appreciate it, um, especially since, you know, b- before we we started recording, we were talking about how there um, there's not a whole lot of marketed information about oral immunotherapy. And uh, my care navigator, Alexis, we were in with a patient the other day talking about oral immunotherapy. And then there's some um, some other practices across the country that do something that's not quite oral immunotherapy and is kind of shrouded in secrecy with what's going on. Um, and, you know, Alexis brought up this beautiful point. I thought that, you know, some some groups have have marketing behind them and and some o, most OIT doctors are practicing OIT. They are doing OIT. And we as docs, I run my practice, you run your practice. A lot of the OIT docs across the country are in private practice. Some are in large hospital, academic organizations, but we really are primarily focused on medicine. And so getting good OIT information out there, um, I'm just so happy that you're on the podcast today so we can get more good OIT information out there. Yeah, it's definitely needed. You know, uh, Information is uh, put out by Big Pharma, and then unfortunately, we don't have a product uh, 
that we're dealing with that is uh, supported by Big Pharma. So there goes our TV ads, all the uh, uh, media stuff that would be out there for any other medical mm-hmm. people. So we're still uh, working away in the offices, but we don't have that support behind us. So that's what we lack. But hopefully through efforts like you're doing here and what we all do in our practice to communicate with our patients, uh, the word will spread about how wonderful this is for patients with food allergies. Yes. No, absolutely. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about the wins and the hows and the whys to do OIT. And I always like to preface this with OIT, oral immunotherapy, is a treatment for food allergy, but avoidance is still a very good management plan for families with food allergies and that your family has to be in the right season of life if you're going to embark on the OIT journey with your kiddo. So talk a little bit about when do you see that OIT is is going to be a good fit for a family? What are the, some of the things that go through your mind and what do you talk with your patients about when you're talking about, you know, should this even be something that you guys are considering as a family? Right. Well, we've always dealt with food allergy as allergy specialists for, for decades. Uh, we just had nothing to offer uh, for all those years except for avoidance. So we got pretty good at it, and we made sure they had their epinephrine devices. Um, so life went on, although a little bit scary because that's all they had was that device, and kids would be with grandma or at friends' houses, and the device wasn't always there. So we didn't do a very good job with food allergy management until about 10 years ago. Um, a little longer in some of the very early sites that were offering this. But about 10 years ago, we started here in Sarasota, Florida, doing um, desensitization uh, for the right patient. And that's so important that you bring that up first. So it's going to be the patient who wants highly allergic. Um, and that's proven by past history of reactions uh, and supporting laboratory or skin testing uh, data that tells us, yes, this person is highly sensitive and, and will likely have a problem and a serious problem if he encounters that food in his diet. So that to be the right allergic patient. And then there has to be the right family and dynamics that they can carry out the process. And that's no different than being able to follow up with rehab after surgery or doing anything that, 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 that impacts your life. So they have to be able to come into the office on a regular basis. Uh, they have to be able to dose safely at home. So that's uh, family support. Um, that can be a problem in divorced families. You want support on both sides if it's a divided family like that. Uh, the finances have to be in order through insurance or however it's going to be dealt with. Um, and then the motivation, motivation of the patient is probably one of the most important ones. Um, now, that's not terribly important to a three-year-old. Uh, when they get a little older, they can get a little feisty. And if they do not want the food as we go forward, it's not going to succeed. So you need all those things to be looked at up front and spend a lot of time, either the doctor or the staff, and, and through literature we can provide them. So they understand what they're getting into. They can always get out of it, and it's not like a chemotherapy or a drug that's going to hurt them by doing it. They can drop out and be no worse off than they ever were, but you don't want to kind of waste their time or your time if they're not going to stick with it. So going through all those steps early on and finding the uh, right patient, the right food. We can't do all foods. We do foods that we can easily provide for them on a regular year-round basis, milk, egg, wheat, those kind of things. Shellfish we really haven't got into yet. One, because it's hard to find shrimp all year round. And two, will it really protect against other shellfish, for instance? And from from a thin fish standpoint, will one white fish work against others? So a lot of stuff we don't know on our side. Mm-hmm. That would make it kind of not so helpful if we just did one food and you're still allergic to others. 
Uh, so right. we know a lot about some foods. We know very little about others. But still, that's great progress from 10 years ago. We didn't know anything about it. Tremendous progress. Because right. 10 years ago, it was, here's your epi. Yes. And that's it. And now we have we have options. You brought up a couple of things that I thought were super important. I wanted to sort of camp on. The first thing you brought up about being highly allergic. I've had so many patients tell me, oh, well, I was told that my numbers or my kiddo's numbers are too high for OIT or my kiddo is 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 too severe or too allergic for OIT. Where do you think some of that comes from? And what's been your experience with that? It's pretty clear where it comes from. It comes from uh, early life testing uh, which we thought we were doing the right thing, we being allergists, even pediatricians. What do you mean by early life testing? Oh, so it's the one-year-old who has eczema uh, and has a local reaction to milk around his mouth, which is more of a contact problem. They then draw tests because they're, oh, gosh, we've got to find out if this child has allergies. We know in these kids with eczema, atopic dermatitis, early in life, they have so much of these allergy antibodies, the IgE, ME11E, uh, that they get these false positive test results. So these kids will come back with four, five, six, seven positive tests. Mm-hmm. It depends how you describe positive. Very low positive doesn't mean much to us, us as allergists, but if it has a red marking on it being positive, uh, they can have 10 of those tests be positive. So people are told they are allergic to all sorts of things. So the Perception of food allergy and the reality are two different things. The perception of allergy is much higher than the reality. So many of our patients, Mm -hmm. once they meet us, we can dismiss them in one visit or two visits sometimes and and prove they're not allergic at all. So So nice. You really sort through that pretty quickly. Uh, And you do want to make sure that the doctor did a careful job in that. It just didn't say, oh, positive test, let's go treat you. We don't want to over-treat. There's no years of giving allergy shots, which allergists have done for 100 years. You don't want to overtreat someone just so they have a positive test. Mm-hmm. If they're doing fine with their cat, that's not their problem. So, so I, I call that the rule out food allergy clinic. Right. Yes, I've had right. many, many of those where you're exactly right. I want to I want to stay right there for a second too because you talked about something that I always say is a huge no no: the food allergy panel. Yes, drawing a panel. Um, anytime. A, a food allergy is suspected, it is it, it should be suspected based on the clinician's insight and clinical history and sitting there and talking with the patient and really getting in the weeds about what happened, what the food was, how it was prepared, who prepared it, all the things, right? How long after until the reaction occurred? How was it treated? How long did it last, right? And when when those types of questions are not are not asked. And then when food allergy panels are ordered exactly, especially on these kiddos with eczema, they're going to come back with all these positive things and it makes such a mess. And the most heartbreaking is when panels come back positive, kiddos eating food, foods are removed from the kiddos diet just because of test is positive, not because of any sort of clinical indication that the kids eating it perfectly fine, no high swelling, trouble breathing, vomiting, nothing. But because of a positive test that never should have been ordered in the first place, a food is removed and then it takes sometimes months to be to get into an allergist, depending on where you are, um, or a, a referral to an allergist is not placed. And so then they're avoid this child with eczema who is already at high risk of food allergy is then avoiding these foods that they were tolerating that they've already made IgE to. And that is setting them up for 
allowing that tolerance to wane, that little bit of tolerance that they probably that they clearly did have because they were eating the food fine and letting that that allergy set in. And and I know it, it's so frustrating in hindsight to me, if you can't tell. <laughs> yes, no, you're right. I jokingly refer to al- food allergies oftentimes as a man-made disease. We caused it by doing the testing and there really was nothing there. Now, that's not to dismiss those children who have true food allergy. They're mm-hmm. really important. But there's so many others that uh, they really don't have it. So, yeah, you have to sort through a lot of patients to find the right one for a treatment. But you're helping them, too. You're helping the ones that they now mm-hmm. they were worried about. And that in itself is a, mm-hmm. a great reward. So, uh, keep on ruling out your food allergy in your clinic there, Alice. And the other thing that you brought up that I thought was really good was um, – sort of like low levels and what do low levels really mean? And um, I hear so much about classes like, oh, Johnny's a class four and Johnny's a class three in this and a two in this. And and tell me about your experience and the evidence behind utilizing classes for anything regarding food allergy. Uh, yeah, we don't even use those terms. You know, yeah, there's, there's, a lot of depth to those tests. It's not just the class they assigned to, and that's based on the numerical value, but also its relative nature to their total allergy antibody number. So we look. It's, it's not just like looking at a plus minus result. There's there's a lot of gray in uh, testing. So that's where allergists will, allergists will spend some time, and then ultimately we might have to do an oral food challenge. Um, sometimes uh, some offices will waste time on the really really low ones. Those, those really low tests can just be dismissed right off the bat. But the ones that are in the middle zone, they're not absolutely scary. They're not absolutely safe. Uh, those are the ones you have to challenge, and that can be safely done. And, again, a lot of times you'll clear, clear food, and that person's off and running. And then they mm-hmm. might have one or two left on their, on their chart that truly they reacted to and truly they have high numbers to. They're the ones that are going to be offered the option and the consideration of desensitization uh, going through all those other concerns that we mentioned from the start, mm-hmm. whether they really want to do it. But and so maybe maybe an example of a case when you're talking about high numbers and low numbers that we can put in perspective for our listeners is you've had a kiddo who's reacted to peanut. They have a total peanut IgE greater than 100. Their total IgE is in the hundreds. Um, their peanut component tests are also 80s, 90s, including ARAH2, which is one of the peanut component tests that is very much associated with anaphylaxis as opposed to less less severe reactions, specifically oral allergy syndrome, which I've talked about in a different podcast. Um, and then they also have these little hints of things to tree nuts, um, a 1, a 1.5, a, a 0.5, a 0.3, a 0.1, right? Because now we can measure down to, to 0.1. Um, is that what, what you see when, what you're thinking about when you say somebody with high tests and clinical history, and then some of these other little like immune noise tests, yeah, background noise, uh, just muddy water. I call it. If you have so many allergy antibodies floating around, some will bind to these other foods in a a non-specific way. So yeah, so we'll, we'll just, we'll give them that comparison. We'll say, you know, Johnny's big time allergic to peanut. He had a bad reaction last year and here's his number over a hundred. Look at his. You know, wheat is 0.6, so 100 or 0.6. That puts it in perspective for them. They say, oh, I see. So 100's bad, but 0.6 is not. That's exactly right. Now, there's our, yes. there is the cross-reactivity. About a third of the peanut kids will cross-react to tree nuts. 
Uh, about two-thirds of them have a positive test of tree nuts, but only about a third are truly allergic to those tree nuts. Mm-hmm. And cashew can be a tough one. So cashew at two and three, IgE, can be meaningful even with a peanut of 60, the cashew of two or three. We won't dismiss that out of hand. We'll probably challenge that um, if they haven't had it before. But the the, the lower uh, other foods, even the milk and egg and soy, all those things that are you know in that two or three or below range, we'll often dismiss. So yeah, you got to go through it carefully and um, work through it. And I think you also bring up a good point right there about different allergens are different allergens. And a a two to three in a cashew is different than a two to three in a soy or a wheat. And and those are the same things that we see um, in our practice. And I, I talk about cashew as it's like the the stealth allergen right now or or the the one in the shadows right now because it, peanut gets all the glory, milk and egg are super common, and most kids out, outgrow or it resolves milk and milk and egg, which is awesome. Um, but cashew is such a stinker. Hi there, this is Alexis from the Hoyt Institute of Food Allergy. Did you know that the Institute is the official sponsor of the Food Allergy and Your Kiddo podcast? And did you also know that you are now able to connect with Dr. Hoyt directly? That's right. We are now offering Food Allergy Office Hours for Parents. These one-on-one virtual sessions are available for parents all across the country. It's an educational session, not an office visit, where you can ask all of your food allergy questions and finally get answers. It's as comfortable as having a cup of coffee with your bestie. Simply click the link in the show notes to schedule and mention this ad. We are so, so excited to connect with parents across the globe with this new service. Okay, now back to Pam and Dr. Hoyt. Yeah, it's the nastiest tree nut. And I think it's, uh, it's probably worse than peanut. But it's like peanut kind of came out first. It's got all the publicity. But cashew deserves just as much attention. And probably a little and- bit more because cashew is some more hidden foods. Uh, chefs use cashew more often in various flavorings. Uh, peanuts, you know, at the ballpark, it's peanuts and, and baked goods. But cashew can sneak into that people react to uh, calamari because the dip had cashew in it. And the high school would yeah. have no idea, even though you would ask about it. But the chef decided to get creative with some cashew in there. Uh-huh. So you'll get cashew and a lot of things. So it can sneak up on you and its reaction can be equally uh, severe as peanuts, not more. Yes. And so I just think that that is very interesting and something that um, our listeners will also find interesting. Um, so I love that we've had this whole discussion about testing and really who um, let's get, let, get back to the OIT. But one reason I, I like that we we've had this discussion is because you and I didn't really like plan this part of the discussion ahead of time. And I think it's so great to see that really evidence-based allergy is practiced in our OIT allergy doctors um, and that we do not commit somebody to the road of oral immunotherapy unless they really warrant it. And in order to warrant it, you have to have an IgE mediated food allergy. It is impressive. I mean, without, you know, back to that farmer's involvement, without farmer's guidance, which they are very strictly strict with their rules and the FDA uh, involvement, Without academia really doing much with OIT, it is pretty impressive that what's kind of grown out of clinical practice in the U.S. 
uh, has been very uh, evidence-based and uh, mm-hmm. we share our knowledge from, from with one another. Uh, so it's really been a great experience and I think it benefits patients that this is, you know, far, far from quackery. It's, it's right down the mainstream of how the medicine should be practiced. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very, very openly. Um, and I love that also we have, you know, we have a listserv where we're able to communicate with each other, all the, all the OIT docs, um, across the country, across the world, actually. Um, and I love like when a patient's moving or anything like that, we're, we're already looking for our other very high quality OIT docs. We also meet every year. Um, and, and I, I just, I think it's awesome. I think it's the way medicine was intended to be practiced. And I love being a part of it. And thank you and and um, our other colleagues who help help run those types of events because it's it's very important in the listserv. It's 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 just so helpful. It really is. Um, so let's I would love for you to sort of talk us through what a patient journey looks like from the time a patient comes into your office and the mom's like I'm, I think my kiddo has a food allergy. What what do we do? Right. So, you know, we went through some of the criteria they need to meet. Um, and one of the ones we didn't mention was uh, the burden on the patient. It, is it a burden? Uh, just like any other disease, right? If you got a bunion somewhere, it doesn't bother you much. You really don't have to do much about it. Um, if something's bothering you a lot, it needs to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. Uh, a cosmetic, a physical being, or even a more serious uh, disease state basis. When it comes to food, are you burdened by the fact that you fear this food? Does it affect your daily life? Do you go out and do things? Do you eat out? Uh, do you go to birthday parties? Do you sit in different places in school? So if the person says, no, I'm used to this, and that's usually as they get older, they gain that confidence of the later mm-hmm. age, or definitely the adult. Very few of them really care about OIT because yeah. they have adapted. They got through the rough parts of life. They're independent, unlike little children, and they succeeded in their avoidance efforts. Uh, not to say that some of them won't want to do it. We've done 50-year-olds and we've done 20-year-old people uh, and in between, but uh, the large majority are your, uh, under 20. Um, so if it's a burden on the younger child, or at this point, the real young child, more on the parents, if it's a burden to them, then we can offer something to them. Uh, they already have the EpiPen. They had that from day one when they had a reaction. So they're coming to us for step two. Uh, Epi is already there. So if they're ready for the next step to be desensitized, then we provide information. Some of them have read up on it. Some of them come in pretty naive. Uh, but if that's the case, we'll provide them with all the information they need. And we'll offer them the, the opportunity uh, to go through a desensitization, either orally or under the tongue. Um, and if they start the oral therapy, which is more common, um, they get started. We update their laboratory testing if it's not been done in a year. If they have, if they have asthma, we'll probably do a, a spirometry of breathing test so mm-hmm. to make sure they're not unstable. And that's about it. We're not going around getting carried away with other testing. Um, and then we start with a day one where they'll get their several doses, very, very low dose. This is not a challenge. You know, we know these people are allergic, unlike the people we're challenging when we are trying to see if they will react. The people in OIT get a very, very low dose where hardly anybody reacts. About 5% will react on day one with a few hives at most. Um, the rest are totally fine. And then it's just a course of gradually increasing the amount of the food that they're allergic to um, until they get to a designated top dose, uh, which is still a small portion, maybe a few peanuts, maybe a one cashew, a little, a, an ounce or two of milk. 
and that becomes their maintenance dose that they stay on indefinitely. And then over time, we want to make the life a little easier. So year by year, we'll often, often decrease the frequency of dosing because that's the burden. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can't exercise for two hours. You have to kind of be fairly calm. Um, so mm-hmm. people don't want to, they, you know, young kids in sports and whatnot, or busy kids in school, they don't have a lot of time to do that. And they might not, might not like the taste of it. So if you can go from seven days a week down to five, down to four days, down to three days over several years, you've made life a lot easier for them. Mm-hmm. And do you usually do a challenge before, like a full dose, full serving size challenge before you start um, sort of reducing the maintenance? Well, once they've on the top dose, um, they've gone through those build-up phases and there's Mm -hmm. 14, 15 doses and it can be weekly or a little bit longer. Most people have issues that come up so they can't keep up with a weekly schedule. So it might take four, six, eight months to get Mm -hmm. the top dose. We do every two week updosing. So it takes six, eight, 12 months, depending on the protocol and the family. Because we also say slow and steady, and it's not a race. I used to say slow and steady wins the race, but now I say slow and steady, and it's not a race. Because we'll have some families, you know, they have stuff going on, and you have to do the dosing every day. It's not just you come in for your updose and then you're off it for two, three weeks until you come back in. You do it every day during the safety window you're talking about. But sometimes like, you know, we go on vacation, families have stuff going on. Like we're all, you know, we're all families. We're all real humans. Right. right. And right. so right. it's exactly. And so I really try to impress on patients early on that this is not a race. This, right. this is a very long treatment plan. And so we don't need to rush to get up to maintenance. No. We're going to get plus up to maintenance. Plus they're gaining protection as they go. I mean, if you're halfway there, being for example, you're well above the dose that you probably accidentally encounter, you know, it's mm-hmm. small a contamination, that kind of thing. So you're already getting protection. You just haven't finished the process. Right. You finish that process, get the top dose. We usually have them come back at three or four months later for a three-time dose to prove uh, the cushion of safety they have. So if they're on three PS, we'll give them nine. If they're on uh, two ounces of uh, milk, we give them six. Uh, and this just pro- proves that we're not just right at the threshold that if anything happened to them, if they were a little sick, they didn't know it, or they exercised a little bit early, that they would not have a problem because they actually have quite a cushion of protection. So once we've done that, then we feel very comfortable they're doing great. And then we don't want to do a high-dose challenge again if we decrease the frequency. So if they're on seven days a week, they've already passed the high-dose challenge, we'd automatically go to six or five after a year. And then the next year, we'd do, a, again, a three-time dose to make sure we haven't lost that cushion. Because we don't want to give them the the freedom of the less frequent dosing if we're going to subject them to a risk. Mm-hmm. Acting. So they, each year, if they cut down the number of days, we'll then challenge them the next year and make sure everything's fine. And they almost always pass. So we really don't lose protection. So nice. uh, we do that. And maybe over time, we'll stop doing the challenges. Just empirically bring it down. Uh, but right now, we do the challenge. Give them comfort that you know they're not getting, not losing protection. And one of the things that our therapist in our institute, it, she tells me it's like her favorite thing that I say, is that when we're when we're doing the updosing, we the the uh, the immune tolerance is growing at a much different slope, much more um, much more than just the little updosing that we're doing, and so. What should it, what I'm describing and talking with my hands, which is never good when you're doing a podcast, is that if I'm giving you, if we're at the dose of a quarter teaspoon of peanut butter, then 
we've been working on this for months. We have been updosing for months to get to this point and your immune tolerance is well above that or it should be well above that of a quarter teaspoon of peanut butter. Exactly right. And when you do, so when you, you call your three, three times dose challenge, um, or three times a dose challenge. That's your your high your high oh, high dose high dose high dose challenge. One dose they come in for one dose around an hour, so it's not it's not a, a oral challenge where it's multiple doses. <clears throat> it's one single dose, just like they take their daily dose and mimicking what would happen if they bit in there or had something that had a fair bit of uh, food in it. Mm-hmm. And then so then they stay on that for a year, and then you're then you sort of start tapering them down. Does it matter what what the food is? Or how much of the food? Because the next thing I'm going to ask you is about free eating. And when do people get to free eating? Because that's what people always want to know. So we separate foods into staple foods and kind of non-essential. So the milk and egg, maybe wheat or staple foods, people want to eat milk milk and egg products all the time, basically. It's baked goods. It's everything has dairy and egg in it. So those foods we kind of separate out. Those we do want them to to be able to eat normally. So when they get up to uh, the top dose, we allow them to enter in their diet. So they'll actually, dosing becomes less important for those foods because they're dosing naturally. Mm-hmm. Do you challenge them first? <clears throat> no, if, they're, if they can say, I had a pizza for lunch, ice cream for dessert and cottage cheese in between, they had more dairy that day than mm-hmm. we're going to do in a challenge. So if someone's a vegetarian- But I mean, if they're on maintenance. So if they, when they get to maintenance, like a, a, a cow's milk patient, right. when they get to their maintenance dose, when right. do you say, go you therefore enjoy the pizza? Well, the, the two ounce, we probably not give them the full freedom. We let them eat the baked and, and lower levels. Mm-hmm. The high dose challenge, which is up to a glass of milk, and sometimes even more for adults. Um, we say you're free to go. You can nice. have what you want. And, um, and if you're supplementing your diet a lot, the dosing can decrease. This one kid came back after a year even, and I asked him what he was dosing. He said, I'm not dosing with milk. I went, oh, my gosh, you quit. He goes, no, no, I'm eating cheese, pizza, all this stuff. And I'm just, and his numbers came, his test numbers improved as they should, showing he's mm-hmm. sensitized. So he was getting adequate dosing. Now, that doesn't happen with cashew or hazelnut. You don't naturally eat unless you do a strange diet. Most mm-hmm. of us don't get cashew and hazelnut in our diet every day. So right. you have to make a concerted effort to dose regularly. Uh, but the staple foods, once you get through the buildup, you're kind of on easy street. And uh, we want you to be on. Um, free eating of those foods. And so if you're not doing, if you're not maintenance dosing anymore, or if you're sometimes maintenance dosing, do you still supplement, keep that? Supplement, your supplements. So we say if a day, if you have not eaten dairy for some reason, at least get that milk dose in or get that egg dose in several days a week. But if you're eating a lot in your diet, those several days can, can vary from two to three to four. We're kind of okay with that. What do you say about the safety window for the maintenance dosing at that point? Or I guess that point you're kind of more in what I call tolerance preservation. Yeah, you probably are. We uh, we say, you know, if you're having a significant amount of those foods, similar to a dose would be, but no one has a calculator to figure that out. But uh-huh. having a couple of scoops of ice cream or pizza where it's really there, uh, <clears throat> you probably should be a little careful from your exercise. And there'll be a learning curve. They'll figure that out. They might have one slice of pizza and go do something and get a hive or two. They'll say, shoot, I probably, that's, I can't really do that. Um, but that really is more on a case by case basis. So it gets very personalized as is the beginning. It's very personalized to decide whether or not this patient is a a good fit, whether this is going to be a blessing to them. And then it continues to be very personalized. That's the same as in my practice. We just, it's all about personalizing it to the, to the, to the patient. Right. Um, 
That's awesome. <laughs> what what has sort of surprised you most about oral immunotherapy? Um, well, the longer we do it, <clears throat> things kind of change. Your experiences change. Early on, it takes a few successes to just be overwhelmed. You're just thrilled by the whole thing. You think you've solved the world's problems. But as you go on, things don't quite look as rosy all the time. Food uh, mm-hmm. is a serious problem. The body mm-hmm. doesn't like to be told to uh, eat something that's created antibodies too. So when we start kids older, even I'm talking older than eight, nine, and up, a lot of those kids don't become toler- fully tolerant. They don't lose their allergy. We just kind of calm the beast. But it's still a beast. And mm-hmm. of course, we have to see these people over years. We will have reactions even years into it. Um, mm-hmm. So that kind of brings us to where we like this sublingual immunotherapy. The, the slit form, we think so much. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about sublingual immunotherapy or slit. So that's been around um, not so much in the clinical arena, but it was studied for years back in 06 and onward. There were studies of great institutions out of uh, Carolina and Duke. Mm-hmm. Um, up in uh, um, where else? Um, New York and Mount Sinai. And um, they showed it worked quite well, but they always kind of graded their report with, uh, but they couldn't eat a lot of the food. So mm-hmm. as with peanut, they'd get them, get them up to 12 peanuts, but they couldn't eat 24. Um, but 12 peanuts is kind of a lot of peanuts to eat. And mm-hmm. early in OIT, we were thinking we got to get, maybe we got to normalize these people. We got to let them eat as much as they want. I think most, if not all of us, have realized that's not a good goal. The goal really mm-hmm. is safety. And that's what they all want parents want is safety. Now, again, back to the staple foods, you do want to eat milk and egg. But the rest of these foods, you just want to be safe. Mm-hmm. So if you can eat 12 peanuts, that's pretty darn safe. And then everybody would bargain for that. And you can get that at a much lower price of both safety and cost. Um, mm-hmm. So it is so safe. Um so what we're looking at is because it's under the tongue and you got to kind of hold it under your tongue. So you have to kind of participate consciously uh, as opposed to just putting something in a kid's mouth and swallow it. Right. Uh, we can start OIT in infants. We don't think we can start slip probably about age five, maybe mm-hmm. a immature four-year-old, or maybe an immature seven-year-old. You might have to, be right. have to be able to do it because they can't goof off. If they swallow it, it's not going to work because it's a much lower dose. You need very little under your tongue to do what a lot does in the stomach. Just like not every dose is five milligrams of drugs you take. Every dose has drug has a different dosage. Mm-hmm. It takes for that particular drug to work. In this case, the amount of food you need in the tongue is very small compared to what you need in the mouth. Um, so this is given, so over five-year-old, we'll say you you could have both, you have both choices. You can do OIT or SLIT. Uh, when they get to about 10 and over, we really emphasize SLIT because it's those older kids that have more trouble with OIT. Mm-hmm. More reactions, their thresholds lower. Um, so we uh, plus their ability to cooperate as they get busier in school and whatnot. They start to lose interest. They don't want that two-hour window. Mm-hmm. What child's window for slit? We just have a when- one hour, and that's probably overestimating. I bet it'd be a half mm-hmm. hour. I'd be okay, but we're telling them an hour. It's just one little square in the tongue. They don't have to like the food. So all the people that hate their food. So there's a number of things that have been not necessarily soured us on OIT, but it made, made us realize that OIT is not the greatest thing in the world. It's pretty darn good, um, but there are holes here and there. And again, mm-hmm. your case-by-case basis, that's where you find the holes. And those that struggle with OIT will switch over to slit. Those who we think by nature of their age or their history of being highly allergic to the food that we might think slit might be a better route to go. So I think we can get safety, and that's what they want. 
uh, and we'll prove that by each year after they build up on slit, uh, we'll do an oral challenge uh, to food to make sure they can tolerate the food when they encounter it. That's got to be proof in the pudding. That they in a high dose or in like a bite proof kind of increasing dose? Increasing each year. So uh, year one, we'll do a kind of relatively low dose. We don't want to hurt them and make them react every year. They won't come back after a while right. if we do that. So we're going to start a low dose to make sure we got them off the ground. Year two, higher. Year three, we expect to be up to where uh, uh, you'd be quite happy, up to like the four to eight peanuts. Mm-hmm. So if we can get that far. At that point, if they want to switch over. At any point, they want to switch over. If they don't like putting their tongue. Well, it's a lot easier. Um, they can switch over to oral any time. Mm-hmm. You know, challenge what dose is fine with them, and we'll monitor their blood test. So, we think it's going to be a, a, a quite effective, a lot safer. It's a lot. It's a lot more forgiving. Uh, if you miss a dose, you can miss up to a week and go right back to it. Uh, even if two weeks, you could just cut a dose in half, so you don't have all that fear. Of where do you start back up when someone goes to camp or they mm-hmm. have a prolonged flu? Um, they can do with OIT. Um, the buildup's much shorter. We're talking six or seven doses. Uh, so the whole thing, um, once we talk about that, people really, their eyes open up the slit. And one dad recently said, well, how much dad is there? I said, well, there's more on OIT. I'm on OIT. So the guy was more science-based. He wanted the numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was falling in love with the idea of slit. He just fell back on that. Uh, so everybody has different, what their interests are. So, yeah. you know, just like anything else, people are worried about cost or their time factor or the safety. Everybody has their own, uh, top priority. Right. It's nice to have that in our, uh, our toolbox. Yeah. Toolbox of what we can offer these folks. And we're just offering it more and more. Um, and we hope to get more data to show. But the data, the original studies show it works. So we're not questioning that. There wasn't a lot of data on OIT when, when we all started this two mm-hmm. years ago. So I don't feel badly about not having our own personal data. You got to start somewhere. So got to we'll, start somewhere. We'll get our clinical data and share that with others. And then um, I expect people will, uh, there's already becoming more and more interest, as you say, from our little uh, listserv where the doctors are communicating. You keep on getting these bad case outcomes. Of course, that's the worst of their own cases. There are a lot of wonderful successes with OIT, but we hear about these bad cases, and those are the ones that need to be shifted over to SLIT. So I think more and more mm-hmm. doctors are seeing it. I like to have a kind of a salvage plan. Of I think it's great. Bad patient and uh, maybe an initial form of treatment for the older kids. Yeah, especially to get them to that 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 safety net, the bite proof that so many families that that they're looking for. Um, as we kind of wrap up, I want to ask you, when do you, when do you discharge patients from your practice? And when do you tell them, okay, you don't need to carry Epi anymore? I'm sure it varies by patient, but do you have any hard and fast? They have to be on this for this amount of time uh, or tolerating this much? Well, we wouldn't discharge them from the practice. They'd talk, we have to hear from them every year. Now, if they're further mm-hmm. away, they all need to come in. We might just get a blood test and, and get that. Uh, read it and talk to them on the phone. Uh, <clears throat> the use of that, that epi, that's that's an interesting, maybe from a medical legal standpoint, they probably should have it. But in reality, if they're eating three to four cashews at home and they tolerate it three times that, they're not mm-hmm. going to accidentally eat that at school lunch. So do they mm-hmm. really need to carry their epi? I don't think so. I think if they go on a trip, uh, mm-hmm. on a safari, uh, they might want to have it with them. But in day-to-day life, and we got to keep in mind, reactions to food weren't very high before they came in. You'll have a mm-hmm. one reaction in his life. Right. One of our treatment is just peace of mind. That's yeah. why it's so good. Slit is going to give that peace of mind. Just because they think they're feeling the doctor and doing all that. 
that's half the battle right there. They could yeah. conceivably go through the next 10 years after meeting us and not have a reaction without us. Right. <laughs> Avoidance <laughs> right. works. So Avoidance works. Yes. Right. So why torture them with a form of treatment like OIT can torture some folks? Mm-hmm. Uh, we know they have more reactions on OIT than they did before. Uh, why do that if we can get the same peace of mind and decent safety? So mm-hmm. that's why we're just leaning more that direction. And what you mean about more reactions, yes, there are more reactions because you're ingesting the allergen. They should be less severe reactions. They typically are less severe and they're more controlled as opposed to that accidental ingestion. And we even have in our practice, we have an an OIT reaction plan Mm. that is very different from their anaphylaxis action plan at school that is used in the case of an accidental ingestion of their allergen. Um, because when you see what your kid is eating every day as the OIT dose, then, um, and you, and, and you are, are monitoring and paying attention and all these families are paying attention, then that is very different than somebody in the community at school who has no idea what your child ate. And all they know is that your child is suddenly coming in from the lunchroom, having hives and vomiting. So OIT reaction plan, very different in our practice from anaphylaxis action plan. And the way it's perceived by the family is different too. They don't, as much as we don't like OIT reactions, the families are still good at it because they are taught to to expect it. It can happen. So we would think a, a reaction to two in a year would be terrible. They come in, oh, we're fine. We got, you know, we dealt mm-hmm. with it. They're proud of themselves. So it, again, doesn't have to be a burden. But if we could eliminate eliminate that with slit, yeah, get another pause. But as you mentioned, some people don't mind it because they uh, really are, are trained well. Mm-hmm. Top of it, they're happy, ready. They'll do this early. The whole thing is behind them. And I've had moms that are 15, 16 year olds saying, "I'm so glad it happened. We're going to college, and I want this kid to know it. You know, he knows how to give the epi. He did it himself." So it's really an educational process, a maturation process that, uh, you know, makes yeah. sense. How do you counsel your patients who have gone through OIT, are eating the foods and sometimes supplementing with a maintenance dose, and they are going to college now? You say, keep on keeping on and keep your epi with you just in case? Well, they can. It depends on what stage they're in, how long mm-hmm. they've been doing it, what their numbers are looking like, what's happened uh when they've missed those for a week and got back on it, have they been stable as can be despite life's ups and downs? Mm-hmm. I feel a lot less concerned about that person than the one that has said they've used Epi three times in the last yes. three years. Yes. That person still seems, is still kind of dealing with that beast. Yes. They would probably be a little more strict with that one. But uh, now we hope by college, and what depends when you start this process, of course. But we, you know, we always say, I wish you got it through seen in their senior year of high school. We always say, I wish we would have seen you when you were a freshman and we could have, you know, moved into long or when you were 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is what it is. So we can't go back in time. I told a patient yesterday, we can't hop in the DeLorean and go back in time, but we have options now. And, and that is so wonderful. Cause you know, we started the podcast talking about 10 years ago. We didn't really have many options. It was, here's your EpiPen. Come back and see us in a year. Right. But Thank you so much for for sharing all of your wisdom, Hugh, and talking about um, your practice in OIT. And um, I just appreciate you sharing all this with with me and with our listeners. Well, I'm happy to, and I appreciate the work you do and try to spread the good word so patients can get proper care and uh, not be taken advantage advantage of, but at the same time not be neglected. And so we got to get that sweet spot in between, and uh, that's what you're doing. 
really hope you enjoyed that episode. I know I enjoyed recording it with you, and there's so much good information in there. And that brings me to my point. There's a lot of good information in that episode. So I want you to talk with your allergist if you are considering oral immunotherapy about these three things. Number one, potential goals. Number two, risks. And number three, benefits. Discussing all three of these in depth and specifically about your child will help you have a smoother and more successful journey, both in deciding whether or not OIT or SLIT is right for you, and then afterwards. So whether you continue avoidance management or you go on to do one of these treatments or both of these treatments. So talk with your allergist about goals, about risks, and about benefits. And don't forget, if you like this type of information, go to foodallergyinyourkiddo.com where we have a ton of food allergy and treatment information. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which I highly recommend. It's a great way to get great info directly to you. That's the episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. Of course, I'm an allergist, but I'm not your allergist. So talk with your allergist about what you learned on this episode and visit us at foodallergyandyourkiddo.com where you can submit your family's questions. God bless you and God bless your family. Mm-hmm.